I humbly and prayerfully hope that what I have to say will be received in the spirit that I would like to convey. We have just heard the prophet of God. He is a watchman on the tower. He has raised a warning voice. I would urge all to listen and follow his counsel. It is tremendously important always to be in harmony with those who, according to Paul, have watch for your souls as they must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief. Isaiah spoke of a people who did not care to listen to their prophets and seers who were urged, Say to the seers, See not. And to the prophets, Prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Nephi explained, The guilty taketh the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. President Spencer W. Kimball spoke of the duty of prophets. He said, I am sure that Peter and James and Paul found it unpleasant business to be constantly calling the people to repentance and warning them of dangers, but they continued unflinchingly. So we, your leaders, must be everlastingly at it. If young people do not understand, then the fault may be partly ours. But if we make the true way clear to you, then we are blameless." I wish to speak today of unwanted messages. My purpose in doing so is to attempt to give strength against mistakes, suffering, heartache, and anguish. May I begin by sharing with you a personal experience from a time many years ago when I received an unwelcome but valuable message from my devoted father. After World War I was over, I was married and wanted to get on with my life. My memorable mission was completed before my military service. I was anxious to get on with my life. I'm not anxious to be a student again and go back to the university where I had started some years before. My intended course would require another three years of intensive study, discipline, and poverty. With all this in mind, I said to my father, I don't think I'll go back to school. I'll just get a job or start a business and go forward in my life. Now, my father had completed law school after World War I as an older student with a wife and three children, and his response was typically direct. He said bluntly, what can you do? His answer was so brutally honest that it hurt, but I could not ignore it. I went back to the university and completed the course. This frank but well-intentioned message changed my life. At the time of Jesus, a certain ruler asked the Savior a very significant question and received a hard answer, which he did not want to hear. With the hard answer came a great promise. The meaningful question the rich man asked was, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And the ruler answered, All these I have kept from my youth up. 
And the unwelcome answer then came from the master, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the ruler heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? How people handle their earthly riches is among the great tests they have in life. This same Jesus of Nazareth spoke much novel doctrine which seemed hard to accept. Some said, What is this new doctrine? Jesus did not speak of revenge nor of getting even. He spoke of loving our enemies and doing good to them that hate us, blessing those that curse us, and of praying for those which despitefully use us. He counseled his followers when smitten on one cheek to offer also the other. And him that taketh away thy cloak forbid him not to take thy coat also. Another interesting new doctrine was to go beyond loving only our own and being good just to our friends. Another strange idea Jesus taught was to lend goods and money, hoping for nothing in return. The Master counseled us to be merciful, to judge not and condemn not, and to be kind to the unthankful and to the evil. He also spoke of being careful when all men speak well of you because all men spoke well of the false prophets. The promise for those who can do this is great. Ye shall become the children of the highest. May I mention two or three other messages which no longer seem popular. One is to respect the Sabbath day. While the Savior himself cautioned against extreme forms of Sabbath day observance, it is well to remember whose day the Sabbath is. There seems to be an ever-increasing popularity in disregarding the centuries-old commandment to observe and respect the Sabbath day. For many it has become a holiday rather than a holy day of rest and sanctification. For some it is a day to shop and buy groceries. The decision of those who engage in shopping, sports, work, and recreation on the Sabbath day is their own, for which they alone bear responsibility. The Lord's commandment about the Sabbath day has not been altered nor has the Church's affirmation of the commandment to observe the Sabbath day. Those who violate this commandment in the exercise of their free agency are answerable for losing the blessings which observance of this commandment would bring. The Lord has spoken in our day concerning the Sabbath day. We are to keep ourselves unspotted from the world and go to the house of prayer. We are to rest from our labors and pay our devotions unto the Most High. The Doctrine and Covenants reminds us, And on this day thou shalt do none other thing. Only let thy food be prepared with singleness of heart, that thy fasting may be perfect, or in other words, that thy joy may be full. The blessings for those who do righteousness are supernal. They shall enjoy even peace in this world and eternal life in the life to come. Another transcendent message, which is often unheeded, peels down from Sinai. Honor thy father and thy mother. I have frequently walked by a rest home that provides excellent care, but it is heartrending 
to see so many parents and grandparents in that good care facility so forgotten, so bereft of dignity, so starved for love. To honor parents certainly means to take care of physical needs, but it means much, much more. It means to show love, kindness, thoughtfulness, and concern for them all of the days of their lives. It means to help them preserve their dignity and self-respect in their declining years. It means to honor their wishes and desires and their teachings both before and after they are dead. Some years ago, I created a stake on one of the islands in Japan. As usual, we held many interviews with the leaders to become acquainted with them. One of the men had moved to that area from Tokyo to take care of his aged and ailing father and his father's business, which was in difficulty because of the father's health. After the father died, the son went to his father's creditors and acknowledged his father's debts. He requested time from his creditors so that he could assume and pay all of his father's outstanding obligations. In our interview, I asked him how he was managing to meet this responsibility. He answered that he was getting along quite well and that he would be able to handle his father's debts. The Lord saw fit to honor him with a call to be one of the leaders of that stake. Besides being one of God's commandments, the kind, thoughtful consideration of parents is a matter of common decency and self-respect. On their part, parents need to live so as to be worthy of the respect of their children. I cannot help wondering about parents who adopt the attitude with their children, do as I say and not as I do, with respect to using harmful substances going to inappropriate movies and other questionable activities. Children often take license from their parents' behavior and go beyond the values the parents wish to establish. There is one safe parental rule. Do not just avoid evil, avoid the very appearance of evil. I should like to speak of one more strong message. It is frequently astounding to see the dereliction of people in keeping the standards of ordinary fairness and justice. This delinquency manifests manifests itself in so many ways. It is sometimes evident in commercial transaction as well as in private contacts. Injustice to others is manifest even in the way automobiles are sometimes driven. This unfairness and injustice results principally from one person seeking an advantage or an edge over another. Those who follow such a practice demean themselves gratefully. How can those of us who do not practice ordinary fairness and justice have serious claim on the blessings of a just and a fair God? Do some of us seek to justify our taking of shortcuts and advantage of others by indulging in the twin sophistries There isn't any justice, and everybody does it. There are many others who seemingly prosper by violating the rules of God and the standards of decency and fair play. They appear to escape the imminent law of the harvest, which states, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Worrying about the punishment we think ought to come to others is self-defeating to us. Brigham Young counseled, that unless we ourselves are prepared for the day of the Lord's vengeance, when the wicked will be consumed, that we should not be too anxious for the Lord to hasten his work. 
said he, rather, let our anxiety be centered upon this one thing, the sanctification of our own hearts and the purifying of our own affections, close quote. Many modern professors of human behavior advocate as a cure to an afflicted conscience that we simply ignore the unwanted messages. They suggest that we change the standard to fit the circumstances so that there's no longer a conflict, thus easing the conscience. The followers of the divine Christ cannot subscribe to this evil and perverse philosophy with impunity. For the troubled conscience in conflict with right and wrong, the only permanent help is to change the behavior and follow a repentant path. The prophet Isaiah taught, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. During all of my ministry, I have been fascinated by the manner in which Jesus hardened the bone and spirit of his chief apostle Peter. When Jesus told Peter that he had prayed that Peter's faith would strengthen, Peter affirmed that he would go with the Savior to prison or to death. Peter was then told, The cock shall not crow this day, before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. After the predicted three denials, the powerful, unwelcome, but steel-hardening message came. Peter heard the cock crow, and he went out and wept bitterly. But this strengthened Peter to fulfill his calling and to die for the cause. There is one unerring voice that is ever true. It can always be relied upon. It should be listened to, although at times this voice, too, may speak unwelcome warning messages. I speak of the still, small inner voice which comes from the divine source. As the prophet Elijah learned, the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still, small voice. Close quote. One single unwanted message may be a call to change our lives. It may lead to the specially tailored opportunity we need. I am grateful that it is never too late to change, to make things right, to leave old activities and habits behind. I wish to testify that the prophetic messages of this conference will lead any who will listen and follow to the promise of the Savior, which is peace in this life and eternal life in the, life, in the world hereafter. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years ago, Dr. Fawn Hunsaker, then president of the Southern States Mission, was invited to stay at the home of a member. They arrived after the children were in bed. He occupied the parents' bedroom, and during the night, he heard the door open, the sound of little feet. A little boy, frightened by a bad dream, had come to his parents' bed for comfort. Sensing that something was different, the little boy felt Brother Hunsaker's face so he spoke quietly to the child. The startled youngster said, You're not my daddy. No, <clears throat> I'm not your daddy. Did my daddy say you could sleep here? <clears throat> yes, your daddy said I could sleep here. With that, the little youngster crawled into bed with Brother Hunsaker and was soon asleep. <laughs>
I might well conclude with that lesson on the trust of a little child. Nevertheless, without apology, I intend to moralize on the innocence and our obligation to little children. There's much in the scripture about little children. The psalmist wrote, children are an heritage of the Lord. And the ever familiar, suffer the little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. When his disciples asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst and said, Whosoever shall humble himself as a little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive such a little child in my name receiveth me. Then came this warning. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of a sea. To me, the most impressive lesson is in the Book of Mormon. Jesus commanded their little children should be brought. So they brought their little children and set them upon the ground round about him, and Jesus stood in their midst. He commanded the multitude that they should kneel down upon the ground. And it came to pass that when they had knelt upon the ground, Jesus groaned within himself and said, Father, I am troubled because of the wickedness of the house of Israel. He himself also knelt upon the earth, and behold, he prayed unto the Father. And the things which he prayed cannot be written, and no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of man conceive so great and marvelous things as they both saw and heard Jesus speak. And they arose from the earth, and he said unto them, Blessed are ye because of your faith, and now behold my joy is full. And when he had said these words, he wept. And the multitude bare record of it, and he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. And when he had done this, he wept again. And he said, Behold your little ones. And they saw the heavens open, and they saw angels descending out of heaven in the midst, as it were, in fire. And they came down and encircled those little ones about, and they were encircled about with fire, and angels did minister unto them. There is more, much more, in the scriptures about little children. There is the sorry side of this subject as well. I wish not to dwell on that in detail beyond listing four transgressions which plague mankind, all of which inflict suffering upon little children. First, that consummate physical union of man and woman belonging to the marriage covenant is now falsely proclaimed as an acceptable indulgence by any two adults. Second, 
The misuse of that procreative power in degraded acts of perversion is widely promoted as the right of consenting adults. This selfish behavior carries neither the responsibility nor the rewards of parenthood. Third, the deliberate destruction of innocent and helpless by abortion is not widely fostered, even publicly funded. And fourth, the bodies and minds and morals of increasing numbers of little children are brutalized and abused by those who should protect them. In it all mankind has sown a bitter wind and reaps heartbreak, guilt, abandonment, divorce, addiction, disease, and death, and little children suffer. If unchecked, civilization will be led unfailingly to destruction. Our behavior is not totally controlled by natural impulses. Behavior begins with belief as well. Beliefs are born of philosophies, of doctrines. Doctrines can be spiritual or secular, wholesome or destructive, true or false. Two doctrines misrepresent the status of little children. Each is widely accepted. Both are false. The first holds that little children are conceived in sin and enter mortality in a state of natural corruption. That doctrine is false. Each time a child is born, the world is renewed in innocence. The revelations teach us that. The glory of God is intelligence, or in other words, light and truth. Light and truth forsake the evil one. Every spirit of man was innocent in the beginning. And God, having redeemed man from the fall, men became again in their infant state innocent before God. That wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the tradition of their fathers. But I have commanded you to bring up your children in light and truth. Mormon taught this doctrine to his son Moroni and hence to us. I can present only a few sentences from his letter. If I have learned the truth, Mormon wrote, there have been disputations among you concerning the baptism of your little children. He called their disputation gross error and wrote, Immediately after I learned these things of you, I inquired of the Lord concerning the matter, and the word of the Lord came to me by the power of the Holy Ghost, saying, Listen to the words of Christ, your Redeemer, your Lord, your God. Behold, I came into the world not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole need no physician, but they that are sick. Wherefore, little children are whole, for they are not capable of committing sin. Wherefore, the curse of Adam is taken away from them in me, that it hath no power over them. And after this manner did the Holy Ghost manifest the word of God unto me. Wherefore, my beloved son, I know that it is solemn mockery before God that you should baptize little children. Mormon told Moroni to teach repentance 
to those who are accountable and capable of committing sin. Eight is established by revelation as the age of accountability. Then, in a sternness unsurpassed in Scripture, Mormon warned, He that supposeth that little children need baptism is in the gall of bitterness and in the bonds of iniquity, for he hath neither faith, hope, nor charity. Wherefore, should he be cut off while in the thought, he must go down to hell. For awful is the wickedness to suppose that God saveth one child because of baptism, and that the other must perish because he hath no baptism. Woe be unto them that shall pervert the ways of the Lord after this manner, for they shall perish except they repent. Behold, I speak with boldness, having authority from God. Read his entire epistle. It is true doctrine. It will inspire a reverence for little children. Thereafter, who could think to neglect, much less to abuse one of them? True doctrine understood changes behavior. The study of doctrines of the gospel will improve behavior quicker than the study of behavior will improve behavior. Preoccupation with unworthy behavior can lead to unworthy behavior. That is why we stress so forcefully the study of the doctrines of the gospel. The laws of God on marriage, birth, and nurturing of little children may seem rigid, but they are very practical. His law decrees that the only legitimate union of man and woman is between husband and wife. For should that expression of love result in conception, marriage provides the shelter for a child who enters mortality innocent and helpless, and marriage assures security and happiness for the parents as well. Whatever the laws of man may come to tolerate, the misuse of that power of procreation, the destroying of innocent life through abortion, and the abuse of little children are transgressions of enormous proportion, for cradle therein rests the destiny of innocent, helpless children. Another doctrine equally false and widely accepted misrepresents the status of little children. Let me illustrate. Years ago, two of our little sons and little fellows were wrestling on the rug. They reached that point which separates laughter from tears, so I worked my foot carefully between them and lifted the older one back into a sitting position on the rug. As I did so, I said, Hey there, you little monkeys, you'd better settle down. To my surprise, he folded his little arms, his eyes swimming with deep hurt, and protested, I not a monkey, Daddy, I a person. The years have not erased the overwhelming feeling of love I felt for my little boys. Many times over the years, those words have slipped back into my mind. I'm not a monkey, Daddy. i a person. I was taught a profound lesson by my little son. He is not just a person or just my little boy. He is a child of God. The cycle of life has moved swiftly on. Now both of those sons have little children of their own who teach their fathers lessons. They now watch their children grow as we watch them. They are coming to know as fathers, something they could not be taught as sons. All too soon their children 
will be grown with little persons of their own repeating the endless cycle of life. Perhaps now they know what it means to begin prayers as the Lord instructed our Father who art in heaven. He is our Father, we are his children. This secular doctrine holds that man is not a child of God but basically an animal, his behavior inescapably controlled by natural impulse, exempt from moral judgments and unaccountable for moral conduct. While they, many claim that philosophy could not lead in the end to, to moral relaxation, something causes it. Is it accidental that the more widely such secular doctrines are believed, the more prevalent immoral behavior? They defend that philosophy with collected data and say it is now proven to be true. Look at all the evidence on our side. We, in turn, look at the sorry way in which mankind degrades procreation and the attendant suffering of both children and adults and say, look at all the evidence on our side. Secular doctrines have the advantage of convincing tangible evidence. We seem to do better in gathering data on things that can be counted and measured. Doctrines which originate in the light, on the other hand, are more often supported by intangible impressions upon the spirit. We are left, for the most part, to rely on faith. But in time, the consequences of either will become very visible. To you adults who repeat the pattern of neglect and abuse you endured as little children, believing that you are entrapped in a cycle of behavior from which there is no escape, I say, it is contrary to the order of heaven for any soul to be locked into compulsive, immoral behavior with no way out. It is consistent with the workings of the adversary to deceive you into believing that you are. I gratefully acknowledge that the transgressions, even those against little children, yield to sincere repentance. I testify with all my soul that the doctrine of repentance is true and has miraculous liberating effect upon behavior. To you innocent ones who have not transgressed but were abused as little children and still carry an undeserved burden of guilt, I say, learn true doctrine, repentance, and forgiveness. Lay that burden of guilt down. For we are all the children of the same Heavenly Father. May not each of his children of any age claim the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus Christ and in so doing, through complete repentance, be cleansed and renewed to childlike innocence? I said at the beginning that I might well conclude with that account of the trusting little child. I think I will do just that. You're not my daddy. No, I'm not your daddy. Did my daddy say you could sleep here? Yes, your daddy said I could sleep here. With that, the little boy was soon safely asleep in his arms. God grant that all little children will be safe with every one of us because their father and their God and our father and our God said we could be here. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Some years ago, I had an acquaintance who had allowed himself to become a compulsive user of alcohol. He drank before he had dinner, and he would have what he called a bracer before 
involving himself in major business decisions. During a routine physical examination one day, a doctor told him for the good of his health, he should break the drinking habit. When I asked him what he intended to do, he said, that's easy, I'll just change doctors. <laughs> Another acquaintance is a lovely, well-educated woman who has been a very heavy smoker. She now tells us of a few times she even woke her husband up in the middle of the night and insisted that he go to an all-night store to get her a package of cigarettes. This couple came in contact with the missionaries, believed their message, and joined the Church. When she knew she had to quit smoking, she almost immediately threw off the chains of this habit and became free of tobacco addiction. As I have been rereading the Book of Mormon following the counsel of President Ezra Taft Benson, our beloved prophet, I have been even more impressed with the counsel Father Lehi gave his family shortly before his death. He pleads with his sons with these words, Awake, my sons, put on the armor of righteousness, shake off the chains with which ye are bound, and come forth out of obscurity and raise from the dust. These words apply to us today. Who among us hasn't felt the chains of bad habits? These habits may have impeded our progress, made us forget who we are, may have destroyed our self-image, may have put our family life in jeopardy, and may have hindered our ability to serve our fellow men and our God. So many of us tend to say, this is the way I am. I can't change. I can't throw off the chains of habit. Lehi warned his sons to shake off the chains because he knew that chains restrict our mobility, growth, and happiness. They cause us to become confused and less able to be guided by God's Spirit. Lehi also reminded his sons that their new land should be a land of liberty unto them, wherefore they shall never be brought down into captivity. If so, it will be because of their iniquity. He could have said, If so, it shall be because ye have been bound down in the captivity of the chains of unrighteous living. Samuel Johnson wisely shared, the chains of habit are too small to be felt until they are too strong to be broken. This lady of whom I spoke was able to break the chains of a bad habit because she became committed to change. Some of the Lamanites under King Lamoni were able to break the chains of their iniquities of murder, indolence, and hatred when they were taught by Ammon. They became even more valiant than Nephi's because they became committed to righteousness. Righteous living is a shield, a protector, an insulation, a strength, a power, a joy, a Christ-like trait. Yes, living a life of righteousness 
is a chain breaker. Many of us today are shackled by the restrictive chains of poor habits. We are bound by inferior self-images created by misconduct and indifference. We are chained by an unwillingness to change for the better. Any wonder in Nephi's day, as it is today, that God's pleas are awake, listen, procrastinate no longer, believe me, come back, and seek the straight course? This catchy couplet fits so many of us. Procrastination is a silly thing. It only brings me sorrow, but I can change it any time. I think I will tomorrow. (laughs) Shaking the restricting chains requires action. They cannot be wished away. A declaration will never break chains. It requires commitment, self-discipline, and work. Chains weigh heavily on troubled hearts and souls. They relegate us to live lives of no purpose or light. They cause us to become confused and lose the spirit. We need to arise from the dust and enjoy the fresh air of righteousness. We need to move forward in patience, understanding, love, and never-ending commitments. Sometimes the chains of arrogance and domination cause priesthood bearers to lose their way and stumble. No man in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is worthy of his priesthood powers and blessings who makes unrighteous demands upon his wife or family. God forbid that any man would find satisfaction or comfort in exercising this type of domination. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. Let me share some chains I have recently observed in the lives of some friends that are causing misdirection, family destruction, loss of self-respect, and sadness. I'm thinking of a young husband and father who is participating in drug usage. He stands to lose family, employment, personal pride, and his own life. His cries of, I'm hooked, tug at the soul. The use of cocaine and other drugs causes those involved to become totally chained to that addiction. Those peddling drugs not only provide chains for others, but shackle themselves with the weight of unrighteousness as well. To those not involved, avoid drugs in any form with all of your might. To those involved, seek help to remove the chains that will drag you down and smother. Drugs are not a quick fix. They are a quick exit 
through a door which too often swings only one way toward heartache and self-destruction. Believe me when I tell you some of the saddest sights of human beings I've ever witnessed in my life are people living with drug addiction. They are prisoners within their own bodies. Many are totally helpless, dependent, and desperate, but none is hopeless. Help lift those chains and fight back for personal dignity, peace, and purpose. Anyone who tells you drug use is the fun way is a liar. Any judge who allows convicted drug peddlers to go their ways with only light penalties isn't worthy of his office. I'm acquainted with a wife and mother who has changed security at the present time to a lifestyle of murmuring and criticism. She is the first to point out faults in her husband's or repeat neighborhood gossip. How damaging is a habit that permits fault-finding, character assassination, and the sharing of a malicious rumor? Gossip and caustic comments often create chains of contention. These chains may appear to be very small, but what misery and woe they can cause. Oh, that ye would awake, awake from a deep sleep, yea, even from the sleep of hell, and shake off the awful chains by which you're bound, which are the chains which bind the children of men, that they are carried away, captive down to the eternal gulf of misery and woe. Listen to the words of a friend who understands well the meaning of this scripture. A man who has been bound by the chains of indifference with God's help and by turning to righteous principles, those chains are not only being broken but smashed. This letter was received a few weeks ago. I was baptized into the church in 1974. At that time, I was employed in a job that required my having to work on Sundays. This, combined with a lack of strength in the gospel, prevented me from becoming an active and faithful member of the Church. Over the years, I neglected my daily duty and prayers. Throughout this time in my life, I drifted farther and farther from the Church and the teaching of the gospel. This neglect brought disappointment after disappointment to myself and my family. I was discouraged, disillusioned, and lacked self-respect and confidence. On the afternoon of April 6, 1986, my wife was scanning through the TV channels in search of something to pass away another lazy Sunday afternoon when she came across the Sunday afternoon session of General Conference about to begin. We decided to watch and see what was going on as we had lost complete contact with the Church, and I frankly could not have told you who the prophet was at that time. As a gift from my Heavenly Father, I listened to a message that would turn my life around. The message followed me around the next couple of days. 
I commented to my wife how much better I felt about myself and my relationship with others as a result of simply applying some of the recommended principles. We have since returned to a faithful and active involvement in our ward." What a blessing it is to rise from the dust and the change of indifference. One may ask, what must I do to break the change which bind me and lead me away from the path of our Savior and lead us so we cannot follow? These chains cannot be broken by those who live in lust and self-deceit. They can only be broken by people who are willing to change. We must face up to the hard realities of life that damaging chains are broken only by people of courage and commitment who are willing to struggle and weather the pain. It is true some people do not want to change, even though they say they do. Only you can supply the motivation. Only you can decide to change. The Church, the home, the family, friends, and those professionally trained can aid, support, encourage, empathize, and guide. But the work of change belongs to the person. Most often, it is plain, hard work. To change or break some of our chains, even in a small way, means to give up some behavior or habits that have been very important to us in the past. Generally, this is frightening. Change involves risks. How will people react and respond to me if I'm changed and I'm different? Even if our present way of life is painful and self-destructive, some of us think it serves a purpose, and so we become comfortable with it. Every worthy change means risk. The risk of losing an old and damaging habit for a new and improved way of life. If fear and an unwillingness to take the risk and challenge of a better way of life take the upper hand, we will not be able to change. Shakespeare in Measure for Measure says it this way, Our doubts are traitors and make us lose the good we oft might win by fearing to attempt. Close quote. With God's help and strength, even the chains of fear can be broken by those who will humbly try. It can be done with this strengthening promise from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 122, verse 4, Because of thy righteousness, thy God shall stand by thee forever and ever. A truly wise person will constantly move forward, striving for self-improvement, knowing that daily repentance is needed for progress. He will realize the good life is simply confirming to a standard of right and justice. 
the joys of happiness can only be realized by living lofty principles. Those who are committed to improvement break change by having the courage to try. Those who live without commitment mistakenly think it is easier to adapt their lifestyle to the weight and restrictions of change rather than put forth the effort to change. God help us to shake off and break the chains with which we are bound. With God's help, they can be shaken off by faith, works, prayer, constant commitment, and self-discipline. May we have the will and the strength to shake the chains that would control and destroy our progress, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In the early days of the Restoration, the Lord commanded one of his servants to declare glad tidings and to do this with all humility, trusting in me, reviling not against revilers. In the constructive spirit of that directive, I desire to bear my testimony this morning about the vital effect in our lives and the lives of others of the day-by-day decisions all of us are making and where we can find help in making them. A teacher once wrote of the unanticipated consequences of some of our decisions. We didn't really ever intend those consequences, but we followed the paths that led to them. He who chooses the beginning of a road chooses the place it leads to, he said. He who picks up one end of a stick picks up the other. And it is not only our own course we are affecting when we choose the beginning of a road. We inevitably travel with others, and sometimes we bring anguish and distress to those we love and to other innocent persons. Over this pulpit, President McKay taught us that next to the bestowal of life itself, the right to direct that life is God's greatest gift to man. Freedom of choice is more to be treasured than any possession earth can give. The oppressing presence of problems all about us, personal, family, and in our society, accentuates the peril as well as the privilege of free agency. The ancient psalmist surely seems to be singing to our time, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Why is there so much trouble with all that fairway? Why do we spend so much time in the rough, someone said. Part of the answer is that without opposition and testing, free agency loses its meaning. Opposition, tribulation, afflictions, the refining fire are part of the eternal plan. Much that happens to us in this life we cannot control, we only respond. But much of the pain we suffer and inevitably impose upon others is self-induced through our own bad judgment, through poor choices. Where can we look for help? The ancient prophet Micah, perhaps surprisingly, seemed to rule out the nearest and most normal sources of assistance—family, friends, and leaders. Some of us have perhaps experienced a measure of the deep disappointment he felt because of Israel's rebelliousness when he declared, 
that the good man is perished out of the earth. He spoke of princes and judges asking for rewards and great men uttering mischievous desires. For Micah, the source of help, was clear and sure. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord, he said. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Jeremiah warned that man that trusteth in man and maketh flesh his arm and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Other prophets have similarly spoken. Does this mean that we may never have confidence in the integrity of others? Must we never trust parents or friends or caring counselors or humble servants of God? This is obviously not the meaning of the scriptures, which themselves are the record of revelation and inspired instruction. What they are emphasizing is the care we must exercise in choosing counsel or example. There is accessible for those who will accommodate it much that is not uplifting or wholesome. Sometimes it seems so perverse in its portrayal of marriage and of family and personal integrity that the undiscerning might be led to believe that this is the normal way for people or families or neighborhoods to behave. Only last week, a comment was made by an assistant United States Attorney General after she had witnessed a popular play in which drug use was made to appear acceptable and even desirable. Quote, we perpetuate the falsehood that drugs make you cute, bold, insightful, philosophical, or chic, she said. And the columnist, in quoting her, added an interesting line. Our society still sanctions the use of alcohol. There is really no more dangerous drug, and certainly none that has done more damage or wrecked more lives over the years than alcohol. But most of us also have available sound sources of wise guidance if we will look for them. There is great power in trust and love, and of course we must learn to trust because our confidence in the integrity of man supports our confidence in God. Yet in matters of lasting importance, one must not rely only on the arm of flesh at the expense of looking to the Lord in Scripture and in prayer. In World War II, I had an experience aboard a United States naval vessel in the South Pacific that was a powerful example of the virtue of wise choices and the peril of making decisions that are immature or impetuous or made in the heat of emotion or that go thoughtlessly along with the crowd. The young man aboard my ship was obviously special. He was modest and able and promising, and it was a blessing to be with him on the few occasions when our particular duties during wartime made it possible to be together. But circumstance dictated that much more of the time and attention of my young associate was spent with others with whom he worked intimately in the compressed life of a crew aboard ship at sea. These associates had lifestyles and a view of values that were far removed from those to which this choice lad was accustomed. Gradually, the circumstances and the daily pressures began to take their toll on a not yet fully stable young man. One day in a far-off port, I observed him almost furtively preparing to go ashore in the company of some of those experienced individuals who were taking him into town for one of their good times, as they supposed. In the Navy, these periods off-duty were ironically called liberty. I had a brief moment with him as he went over the gangway and tried to warn him that this adventure was perilous and that these men meant him no good. His furtiveness turned to defiance, and he plainly told me that he was a big boy now 
able to make his own mind up, and that he would do as he chose. The consequences of the decisions he made that day and that were made for him when, through their iniquitous help, he had lost the power to think for himself or govern his own behavior were different than he ever intended or could imagine. In his immaturity, he rebelliously chose the beginning of a road without thinking where that road would lead him. The place at which he arrived in the next few hours was one which he would never in his right mind have chosen. When he returned to the ship over leave overseas in wartime, out of control and in custody of the shore patrol, he became subject to severe discipline. I cannot forget his tearful anguish as he awaited his ordeal. He could not even remember anything of the most serious of the tragedies that had occurred to him. All he could recall was lifting a glass they pressed on him, not knowing that they had drugged the drink, and then all was blank. They had proceeded to take him on their rounds with them. The charges against him, indelibly imprinted on his previously perfect service record, were heartbreaking. I won't forget his tearful anguish as he said over and over, What will I tell my mom? What will I tell my girl? He had time now and the disposition to listen and to think. We read together the sweet counsel of the Lord concerning Christ's atoning sacrifice and his mission of redemption and of forgiveness and mercy. Two thousand years ago, the Apostle Peter wrote in remarkable detail of our times and what is transpiring in them as individuals, young and old, are sometimes led into tragedy by others who have no wholesome interest in their happiness or their future. These others and the results of their evil influence are so clearly described. I pray that some who sorely need it, or some who can help those who sorely need it, will hear these remarkable words. They come from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 2. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities, of things that they understand not. Having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. They are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest. When they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. When they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. I've never been able to refer to these powerful words without thinking about a clean young man of strong promise who followed bad counsel and bad example into tragedy with compromise to conscience, with heartbreak to himself and those who loved him. We cannot follow the example or heed the counsels of unwisdom or unrighteousness or ignorance or immaturity or ego or greed or bravado. There is no bravery in evil, no true courage in behavior that can only result in deep disappointment. There is no lasting joy in the, the euphoria resulting from substances taken into our bodies which ultimately sabotage our self-control and overcome our capacity to think for ourselves. 
and move us to act in ways incompatible with our best understanding. We see much that is glorious and reassuring in good human beings, but mortal men have limitations. None of us has ever met a mortal in whom we could comfortably rest our salvation. Only one qualifies for that trust, and he is the Holy One of Israel. His love for us was and is so great that he volunteered for the unspeakable burden of carrying the weight of our sins. He is our mediator and advocate with the Father. The prophet Micah spoke truthfully and faithfully long ago when in a time of great trouble he testified, I will look unto the Lord, I will wait for the God of my salvation. He will hear me. All of us have much to learn and need good counsel. And beyond sound human help, beyond the arm of flesh, it is written, Counsel with the Lord in all thy doings, and he will direct thee for good. He will console you in your afflictions, and he will plead your cause. Mormon's last words to his son is, My prayer for my children and grandchildren and those of men everywhere. My son, be faithful in Christ, and may not the things which I have written grieve thee to weigh thee down unto death, but may Christ lift thee up, and may his sufferings and death and resurrection and his mercy and long-suffering and the hope of his glory and of eternal life rest in your mind forever. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.